Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? And today we are honored to welcome Representative Daniel Bonham. Welcome, Representative. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Of course. And Representative Bonham is the very first sitting legislator that we have gotten to interview on this podcast. Oh, so, wow. Again, what an honor. I had no idea. Thank you so much for being We talked to a couple prior representatives, but yeah. never like someone who's actually sitting. So again. And during sessions. So and, like, I mean, I'm doing the job right now as we speak. Wow. Wow. The insideriest of insiders. We got all the good stuff here on <laughs> a rational Republican. Excellent. So uh, to start things off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? How'd you get into politics? What brought you here? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, God, where do you start? I, I go back to, I guess, elementary school. I think it was sixth grade. The first time I thought, ooh, I'll run for some sort of class office. I think we had like, it would have been fifth grade going into sixth grade. We didn't have a president or a vice president or anything like that, but we had like this coalition of student leaders and I ran for that and lost. <laughs> and then for whatever reason, I, I was just interested in it. it. It fascinated me. And so I ran again, I think in seventh grade and won and then was class president and my freshman year, my sophomore year, my junior year ran for ASB president in high school, lost again, and then <laughs> went to college. And I remember coming up in college and just having were, zero interest whatsoever. Oh, you were real set to be a Republican losing that many times. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was good practice for the future and what, what that would feel like. Um, but yeah, the, went to college, studied business, went out to the business world, uh, worked for a corporation for eight years, uh, before my wife talked me into moving to her hometown and buying a small business. And through that process, got to know a couple of her old classmates, one of which ran for city council and one. And in conversations with him, just talking about how to manage a budget, how to make money as a small business, he said, man, we need to get you involved in the city budget committee. And so he talked to the mayor and they invited me to be part of that process. And I want to say I did that for four years and, and also the urban renewal budget committee. And that fascinated me, but I didn't want to be the face. I told this gentleman that if he ever ran for office, I would be his campaign manager or his chief of staff. And then when John Huffman retired, I called him up and said, hey, are you going to do this? And he said, gosh, my kids are the wrong age. Mm. You know, they're like six and eight. It's a bad time for me to be away from home. You should do it. And I did have the interest. I wanted to do the work. Again, I just never wanted to see my face on a billboard. So I thought, <laughs> you know, maybe there's a different way to do the work and not have to, you know, have my name or face out there. And so talked to my wife, talked to my kids and just decided it was it was the right thing and the right time for our family to be able to try and leap into this. And I had some experience too when I had been with Evergreen Airlines and then, you know, with our own shop, we run a hearth shop back home and there were some political concerns over wood stove smoke. And so we started to lobby in DC for that. And that process kind of, again, sparked the interest. Pun you, not intended. <laughs> <laughs> you picked up you, on that. You <laughs> know, um, I've noticed that a lot of representatives own their own businesses, at least on the Republican side. I don't mm -hmm. know much about the Democrats, but it seems to me that's kind of a common thread, partially because this job does not pay well. Is it $24,000 a year or something that representatives make? So we got a raise in the short session. I think we're up to 30. Okay. And, and in fairness, if you look at this session during the long session, we also get per diem. 
okay. for folks like me that are far away from home, that $148 a day does get gobbled up with actual expenses. Sure. Uh, for folks that live close to town, they still get the per diem and they get to go home. So just to give you an idea, I waived my PERS, I waived my healthcare benefits. And so the healthcare benefits came with a stipend. Again, if you don't take what would cost the taxpayers $2,000 for coverage for my family, they give you $259-ish somewhere in there if mm-hmm. you opt out. Okay. And so I get paid to not burden the taxpayers. But uh, Thank you. anyway, so when you look <laughs> at that total bill at the end of the list last month, the check that I had for this job was over $6,000. So oh, wow. I don't want to... Say it's okay. $30,000 a year. It's not. The per diem and some other things do help and they contribute to at least living expenses for those of us that aren't in town. Interesting. Well, that's, that's good to hear. One of the points that I've made either on a podcast or in private, I forget, is the way that we compensate our legislators discourages anyone who's not independently wealthy or owns a business from running because you're going to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars to win this race. And then you're going to be basically at the poverty line. But it sounds like you at least can live off of what you're making. Now, so. that said, though, the $100,000 or the million dollars, depending on the race, is sure. mostly other people's money. True. Most of these folks, we're not self-funding our campaigns. Uh, members of the lobby, uh, business, friends, relatives are contributing to your campaign. So very few people are using their personal wealth to run. People sure. do. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people that do. And if you look up their Orstar account, which all this stuff is public record, you can see their personal investment in their Mm -hmm. campaigns. But uh, I do think the challenge of that conversation of legislator pay Mm -hmm. is there's some truth in what you said. There are Mm -hmm. people that don't do it for fear that they won't earn enough money. Mm -hmm. And that's a real concern. You don't want to preclude people from being able to do the job based solely off of their income. Right. But at the same time, I don't think we should be paying legislators to make this a career either. So there's got to be balance. No, of course. So next thing, you also are doing a podcast. Oh, yeah. Do you want to uh, take a minute to to plug yourself real quick? (laughs) So I'll tell you, (laughs) interestingly, so putting 30,000 plus miles on my personal rig last year, uh, started to get tired of my own playlists. And so I got a few <laughs> books on tape, right? Some audio books. And then it was my brother, Kevin said, Hey, have you gotten into podcast? And he suggested a few. And so looking through my Apple podcast list, I found Senator Johnson, Betsy mm-hmm. Johnson has a podcast right. this yeah. week with Senator Johnson and Michael Desmond from back in her district runs radio programs. And so he and she have been working together now for 13 years doing radio programs and they just now have put them out on the internet. So now it's called a podcast, but this is what they've been doing the whole time. And the insight that she offered, I mean, I started to know things at meetings and people would be like, how the heck do you know that? Hmm. And I would say, I listened to Senator Johnson's podcast. She talked about this, you know, two weeks ago. (laughs) And so as you live here in the Capitol and, and it becomes a bubble, you start to realize that a lot of your conversations are with the same people. How do you break through just talking to the people that are totally engaged that follow your social media that are looking at the news, trying to find information. How do you get to people that maybe are driving in their car 30,000 miles a year that are looking for something and, and maybe they'll stumble across it. So Senator Johnson's got not only the podcast, but a few radio stations back home picking it up too. So there's a greater opportunity to connect with some people that maybe not otherwise connecting with. And we thought that would be a good opportunity for us to give some insight into the building, into the personalities, into the process. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a work in progress. But uh, hey, we're the experts at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Can I just ask what uh, what were the playlists that you had on your Spotify on those road trips, and what podcasts did you listen to? So I, I'm not a Spotify guy. Okay, uh, I, I'm just getting. I, I'm trying to become one because my daughter and my son <laughs> start talking about so and so's playlist and. And a friend just went on a trip and I said, hey, I'm looking to make a summer playlist. And they said, just check out my Spotify. So I am going to figure out what this costs. I'm kind of cheap guy, so I'm going to balance that. But now I've got a very eclectic taste in music. You know, I grew up in the 80s, but the youngest of six kids. So between okay. what my dad listened to from old gospel music to Louis Armstrong all over the board – to my brothers and sisters with Steve Miller Band and Aerosmith. And and then, you know, my brother got into some heavy metal for a while. So Iron Maiden, Metallica. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm all over the board. The golden uh, era. If you listen to one of my playlists and you can predict the next song, you should get a prize. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. That's My dad is named Steve and I always hated the Steve Miller Band. So I actually, I saw them at an air show in 2012 and I just, oh, I called him and just held the phone up and he was so mad at that. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad is John Bonham. And okay. I can remember growing up, a guy called, and he was a little inebriated when he made the phone call. And he asked for my dad. I put my dad on the phone, and dad hung up after talking to the guy. And he said, what was that all about? And he said he wanted to know why I quit the group, because <laughs> the drummer from Led Zeppelin was John Bonham. Oh. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but that John Bonham you know, died a few years ago of a drug overdose. I, I'm you know, not that same guy. I'm not a different guy. guy. Yeah, not same name, guy. different guy. Yeah. <laughs> So we haven't actually said the name of your podcast yet. Main oh, Main Street Politics. Main yeah. Street Politics. All right. Go look it up. Listeners. After you listen to this one. <laughs> listen to ours. And Finish then this one <laughs> and then go listen to his. So you're here. There's a pretty strong Democrat majority, Democrat supermajority here yeah. in, in the Capitol. Uh, so what's it like? Are you guys getting anything done? How are you finding ways to influence the process? Or is it just the Democrat show and they do what they want? Yeah, it's all of the above, really. The I, above. I think you know, the challenge with serving in the legislature period is relationships, right? You got to build relationships. You got to get to know people. You got to let people know that you're a reasonable, responsible person. You've got to engage in the process. You've got to show Some up might meetings. say rational. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got to be a rational Republican. So <laughs> funny story. John Huffman, my predecessor, had a constituent come up to him and say, every time I see your name in the paper, it's got this R next to it. What does that mean? And he said, it means I'm reasonable. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I thought, you know, honestly, but isn't that what we want? We want people that are considerate, that uh, are reasonable, that are engaged. And again, we've worked pretty hard in our office, not just me being the representative, but the staff. You know, I've got a chief of staff, Dylan Amo, that's got experience in the building. He's got DC experience. He knows, you know, the process. And that helps tremendously. I mean, having the right staff really does help your office function. Uh, we've got a young gal, Raina Gomez, that's working with us as well. And having those people engaged and, and having energy and working relationships in the building as well to make sure that you're aware of what's going on. And, you know, there's definitely a voice to share with that majority party, to try and influence, to try and steer. The reality is, though, when they decide to steamroll, they have the power right now. I mean, with 38 members in the House and 18 in the Senate and a relatively liberal progressive governor as well, they can dictate policy right now. Sure. So to the extent that we can be in the room. And there are challenges right now. I can tell you right now. Uh, the reason why the Senate walked out for a week, the reason why Republicans in the House are asking them to read bills and kind of slow the process is there are plenty of meetings where we're not even invited. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing not to be needed. It's another thing not to be wanted. 
And so if, if we're going to have this process become so political that you're going to drive policy to have a political purpose, not just because it's the right thing to do for the state, but so that I can pass a policy that you appear to be on the wrong side of how the constituents of Oregon are going to feel about something. And I can now posture you for the next election as having voted against something that's popular because I drove the policy to be so detrimental Such to a divisive and absolutely. Know, I'm in the same boat as Dylan and I said a lot of kind words. I'm thinking that's probably just because he's sitting here in the room with us, but we'll get you on another episode when he's not around. We'll see. I, but, I offered him a microphone. He declined. So, <laughs> But I, so I, I worked for a congressman in D.C. for a while, and I we always got the sense that bad public policy was the enemy. The Democrats were not the enemy. They were yeah. the adversary. Yeah. But I've never worked here in the Capitol in Salem, but I've, I've always gotten that same sense of there are cordial relationships and you can build friendships with people on the other side of the aisle. But at the end of the day, you're trying to work to get good policy done. And if that's with Democrats, then so be it. You know, the way things are kind of portrayed in the media and the way things are, you know, when I get together with 20 other Republicans, they'll say, oh, you know, these big bad Democrats. Do you feel that it's getting kind of towards a point where that's more of a reality where there really is obstruction and closed door meetings and everything? Do you think that that's getting to a point where it's going to be a problem? Or do you still feel that it is possible to, you know, to be in your shoes and to build those relationships and to have a seat at the table when it is possible? This is what's fascinating about this process. And going back to personalities is because, one, not all Republicans are built alike and not all Democrats are built mm -hmm. alike. Mm -hmm. And even to the extent that you could have a more extreme perspective, you know, I could be uber conservative on fiscal and social issues, and yet I could be an outgoing, accommodating person that wants to engage and can appear a lot more reasonable than my ideology might actually be. Mm -hmm. And that's where it, it really does get fascinating. The personalities drive so much of this. And the other element to what you're talking about is who has power in the building. Even a member of the supermajority, you know, one of 38 Democrats that could be a freshman from a district that is a solid D seat, uh, may not have a lot of influence even within their own caucus. So uh, the power dynamics are fascinating. Uh, how the chairs are selected, how committees are formed, who assigns committees, you know, the power of the first vote, who we put in charge as the Speaker of the House or as the Senate President is integral to how the whole session plays out. And so, you know, there's no easy answer to your question because there's so many balls in the air at any given time that you're juggling as you try and engage in the process. Well, hey, we're hoping there's not an easy answer because otherwise we'd be out of material for our podcast. And <laughs> we couldn't talk about anything else. <laughs> so speaking of policy, we just passed, we collectively, Oregon, yeah. just passed a $2 billion tax on a lot of different things, ostensibly for the, ostensibly, is that the right word? Mm -hmm. For schools, for K through 12. Right. And a lot of the Republican objections to that were that, well, first of all, that it taxes businesses. The way that it collects that money is maybe not where what we would have liked. The other problem that we as Republicans said was that a lot of this money is going to get gobbled up by PERS, likely. Right. The bill itself says it's going to K through twelve, but there's really no hard rule to make it go to K twelve. Is that correct? Right. And any what are your thoughts on on that now that it's done? So first and foremost, you can never bound a future legislature mm -hmm. with what you're doing in the budget today. 
you know, otherwise we could just run a budget for the next 20 years and say, thanks, we don't need to come back. We know how we're spending money. Uh, so we get to collect this $2.8 billion tax. Right. 2.8. Now 2.8 becomes two when you give 800 million of it back in the forms of in personal income tax decreases. But the difference is you're going to allow people to keep anywhere from, I think it's 71 to $390 of their own taxes or their own income rather, and avoid the tax. But then you're going to drive the cost of living up at least $671. So it's a net loss for everybody. And that that needs to be made clear because there is plenty of talking points from our Democrat friends saying, oh, people will actually make more money. No, you won't. I mean, you might get to keep more of your income, but at the end of the day, net, net, yeah, coffee is going to cost more. Toiletries are going to cost more. Over-the-counter medicines are going to cost more. I mean, there's so many things that are going to – your pizza delivery is going to cost more. Everything's going to cost more out in the market. Yeah. And the problem that I had specifically with this endeavor was the type of tax that we're using. Not only have we voted down sales tax like 14 times in the state of Oregon, we specifically voted down this type of gross receipts tax mm-hmm. two years ago, overwhelmingly voted it down. And so they kind of watered down what a gross receipts tax could look like by allowing people to offset some costs against total revenue – but at the end of the day, this is a gross receipts tax, which any economic review of gross receipts tax is scathing. They're inefficient. They lack transparency. They have the ability to pyramid or stack as you start to tax intermediate levels of sales before you get to the finished product. So you can call it a 0.57 tax, 0.57% tax, but on any given good, it could be 3.5% by the time it gets to market. That's why sales taxes are more efficient because you're taxing the good at the point of sale where you actually have cash flow associated with that transaction and not just total revenue. It's going to create cash flow nightmares for a lot of businesses. Yeah. I read an article about a place like Powell's Books yeah. who has really super low margins. They just make it up on volume Yeah, that now is going to have to raise their prices, pass it on to the consumers and might lose business over it. But so. there was an example of like grass seed sale. That before it gets to market, it hits seven different transactions. Mm. Seven, wow. Yeah, so so that's the pyramiding. So every single transaction gets hit by that tax. So it's not 0.57, it's 0.57 seven times. Right. Wow. Uh, So the other comment that I made, and this is maybe not as popular with the Republicans, but (laughs) the issue with this tax, one of them, was that the money would eventually go to PERS. Mm Mm-hmm. Future legislators are not bound, so this they're going to use this to fund the $25 billion unfunded liability, or 25 point whatever. At least 25. At least $25 billion. Uh, and we've talked about PERS a lot on the, on the podcast, but basically what we have kind of discovered through lots of conversations is eventually we're going to have to pay that debt off. There's very little opportunity to negotiate that down or take liabilities that have already been promised and reduce them. We've tried that a number of times, and every time it's been struck down by the courts, by the contracts clause of the Constitution. So I guess my point is, should we not eventually be raising taxes to pay off this PERS liability? I know that, again, not very popular with the Republicans. No, but, but PERS is so complicated. Like, yeah. I'm glad you bring it up because uh, you know if people fully understood PERS, it would be a different conversation. Mm. And Right now, the assumed rate of return is what seven and a quarter percent. I think is right. what they're assuming. If you adjusted that to eight percent, the actuarial unfunded liability decreases tremendously. Hmm. It goes from 
25 something, 27, 22. And those numbers bounce again, depending on the day, depending on right. the, mm-hmm. the, who's doing the calculations, who's doing the math. Yeah. yeah. And so it could go down to 5 billion tomorrow with a different assumed rate. Like that's, that's mm-hmm. the fluctuation. And we think in 2007, we were funded in terms of the PERS liability at 115% of what we actuarially had in terms of liability. And so there's no good analogy to say, this is what it looks like to you, average Oregonian. And the only thing that I can say about it that makes sense to a lot of people is it would be like buying a home on a variable rate at a variable value. Mm-hmm. At any given day, you could have your home paid off. If the market changed, you know, and then the value of your home went down and you had been paying off, then you could get to zero and have your home paid off. But if the market continued to thrive and you bought your home at 300000 and now it's worth four fifty, and a few years later you thought, well, I paid at least $100,000 in equity down and find out, no, oh my gosh, my house is worth more. I actually owe more now. You know, that's the only analogy that even comes close to comparing to how PERS works. And so it ultimately is a cash flow issue. How do you generate the cash to pay for it? And again, that assumed rate of return is a huge factor in how we actuarially account for that unfunded liability. And then, you know, for me, the answer is in the long run, if you went to a defined contribution, Mm -hmm. it would offer you that predictability and sustainability. You would know whatever that contribution rate was, if you called it 14%, that you were always going to have 14% of payroll that you were going to pump into this thing. And the risk would be shifted to the employee as to the rate of return and how long they uh, invested, how long they worked. And there's a reason why the entire free market has gone to this. It removes that liability from the employer. It also helps out if you don't want to stay at a job for very long. And as Nick and I are both millennials, our generation tends to not stay at a job very long. And I think you need at least five years before PERS vests. Right. So if you're going to stay with the state for fewer than five years, your retirement is basically nothing. Whereas if you have a defined contribution, 401k type plan, you get to keep whatever you put into it, plus whatever the state matched. You know. So that's, I mean, that's where I'm at in my yeah. private sector job. I'd be just out of curiosity. It, it just came out today that the state overpaid its taxes by, I think, $1.4 billion was the right. number. And you, like, I was in Portland. I, I wasn't here in the Capitol, but I can just see some people on the left just salivating over that. Do you think there's any chance that the kicker law ever gets overturned and that people try to start getting their claws into that money to, to do things like this, to pay off PERS or start to? I mean, I think it depends on how the election cycles go. Mm-hmm. I mean, you put the right mix of. Democrats and Republicans in this building, I think the kicker would be the first thing to go. Mm. I mean, right now that $1.4 billion would potentially save them from having to make a lot of difficult decisions in terms of how things are funded and what things are prioritized. And the challenge is, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of us that are, you know, more Reagan-style Republicans. Mm-hmm. You know, Reagan gets a lot of credit for being very conservative. But the first thing he did as governor of California was raise taxes. And it was like the first thing he did. And he raised taxes to fund a lot of government programs that he thought were essential. Mm-hmm. Growing up, he was a New Deal Democrat. And so, you know, he believed government served a purpose. And I think there's a lot of us Republicans here in the state of Oregon that do believe that some of these social programs are absolutely necessary. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They should be, though, an opportunity for a hand up instead of a hand out. Mm-hmm. And we've got to eliminate waste. And right now, and this is where, you know, I, I want to work with my Republican colleagues to start to go through the budget line item by line item and figure out where this waste is. So we can start to put forward solutions that these Oregonians that are faced with these taxes, because again, 
we get the blight. Of, you, know, you guys are big business people. We are not here in the state of Oregon. We are not the ones that have done the carve outs. We are not the ones that have made the deals with special interest. And right now we are the ones fighting for everyday <laughs> Oregonians and the affordability of just living in this state. Yeah. Because our colleagues on the other side of the aisle have not met a tax they don't like. I mean, it's not just this corporate activity tax. They're coming after your cell phones. They're coming after increased fees left and right in terms of just reapplying for licensure. I mean, we hit people every way we possibly can. You want a boater's license? Well, guess what? Now, if it's over 10 feet, and even if it's an inflatable pool toy that wasn't really a light, you know, we got to put a number on it and we got to license and register this thing and that'll be $50. Thank you. If you're over 14, we want your money. I just read the other day that Oregon has the highest budget per capita in the nation now. And granted, my source is Wikipedia, so I mean, take that for what it's now worth. We find that to be a very reliable source. <laughs> I agreed. Yeah, I mean, it used to be going through college, don't cite Wikipedia, but nowadays it's it's way it's more accurate than yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it lists all fifty states by budget per capita, and Oregon is tied with North Dakota for the highest per capita. And North Dakota doesn't have any people in it, so like I understand why they <laughs> need to spend the money. But Oregon's very you know middle of the road. It's it's crazy how much we're spending on stuff well there's tons of challenges to it. we talked about pers mm-hmm. when you talk about state employee compensation period there are so many challenges and so many disconnects from what the private sector offers and what state employees get in terms of the total benefits package when you look at the employee contribution at a private sector job most of the time it's 50 percent of the total health care benefit that you're picking up yourself or some percentage thereof you know in the public sector it's five percent ten percent tops and so when people say oh my gosh my i'm so upset with the government because they just raised my percentage of contribution on my health care from 60 to 90 dollars that's a 50 percent increase Mm -hmm. oh yeah percentage wise it's huge but 30 (laughs) dollars versus when the private sector most likely is paying anywhere from 750 to a thousand dollars for that same benefit Mm -hmm. it's a frustrating conversation to have to say these benefits are wonderful. And if you really look at the total package, you know, a lot of these employees are well compensated. And again, I think that's part of the conversation to have as we look at PERS, you know, to go to a defined contribution would take away a benefit on the back end because, mm-hmm. you know, OPSERP and even tier one, tier two, you know, they pay extremely well. So if we're going to mitigate that long-term risk for everyday Oregonians that are paying taxes, how do we guarantee the compensation levels are adjusted to make it still attractive to work for the state. And they're complex conversations. They're conversations I desperately want to have. And again, you know, right now in today's climate, we're not necessarily in a position to force those conversations. Right. And that's definitely reasonable. Raise the pay or raise some sort of other benefit to be more comparable with the private sector. We had a PERS conversation. My wife is a teacher. And so, like, of course, that was one of the things that came up. And the gentleman that we had had on as our guest who leans to the left? And I said, so do you think if we raised the salaries and limited the benefits down in the long run, you know, you think that that would be a possibility? And he, he was, threw his hands up in the air. He said, absolutely. There's no reason not to be doing that. It's Nick's a, hands literally in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Nick gesticulates wildly on the podcast. See, this is all the, we, I, we ought to put this on YouTube because oh, all the man. people are listening and it's like, they're missing the good stuff. I, I would not have been a part of that. Shirt, you know, all this fun <laughs> stuff that you guys missed. So let me shift gears here on you guys. Turn the tables. <laughs> now that I'm a podcast guy, you know, I feel like I get <laughs> well, yeah, us. We've Let's never go. been the yeah. interviewees before. Yeah. So I, I get really curious. You, you both self-identified as millennials. 
Yes. God bless you. And so I think about, you know, as a, as somebody that's engaged in this process that did throw my hat in the ring and now I'm here doing the job and your generation and the folks just younger than you, I'm so interested in how do we connect with those people? How do we get them to get excited about what we're doing? How do we get them to engage in a process and raise their level of understanding so that they can engage in a meaningful way in this policymaking process? Well, so I think that we, and I, I'm, again, gesticulating towards me and James. I, I don't mean he and I. I, just, I mean millennials in general. We were raised on YouTube and BuzzFeed and the internet, and everything is just quick little snippets of anything. And it's tough to get us to actually understand things. And a, a lot of the work that you do here is not 30-second sound bites, is not tiny, you know, easy issues where you're clearly on one side if you're an R and clearly on the other side if you're a D. It's really difficult to engage at a level of depth that's enough to have serious understanding of some of the issues that are facing Oregonians. And I think that's, for us, that's why we wanted to kind of get this podcast started, is to have this vehicle where we could get into some of these longer form conversations. Because I believe, this was in a speech that I gave on Friday, but there's a Mark Twain quote, if you get a reputation as an early riser, you can sleep till noon. And I think we in the party, we in the GOP have that reputation, except we don't have a reputation as being early risers. We have a reputation as anti-gay, anti-environment, anti-education, anti-immigrant. And a lot of people, James and my age, who identify as centrists or moderates or slightly left-leaning, will show up here and it's like, well, you know, I'm going to register as a Democrat. That's It's a blue state and I'm, you know... Donald Trump just got elected, and I don't like him, and I don't know anything about the issues here, but I'm going to register as a Democrat and vote that way. And you talk to them on the issues, you engage them. I mean, I worked for Newt Bueller. I'd go up to a lot of my friends and be like, hey, let me talk to you about Newt Bueller. And they're like, he seems great. I Yeah, I love all these policies. And then I'd say, oh, hey, you know, did you vote for me? I circled Kate. I just, you know, I like Newt, and I liked what he stood for, but I just didn't trust him because he was a Republican. And so I think the best thing to do is to work to fix that reputation because we keep putting forward all these great candidates, yourself included, and sometimes they win. <laughs> I know, yeah, shameless plug. But and sometimes they win, and, and and that's wonderful. But here we are, we sit in the super minority in the House and the Senate, and not in the governor's chair. And it's like at some point, some of these candidates and some of these more moderate districts have to start winning, and I think that's the way to do it. Hmm. I think we got to change our approach, also. I've looked into maybe running for office one day and so started reading other material and what you're supposed to do. And they're like, got to knock doors. You got to do mailers. You got to do all, all this stuff. And then people are surprised when Donald Trump has a social media campaign and wins the, the presidential election. You know, we've got to start doing again to your point, doing a podcast, doing social media marketing, doing that kind of thing. I mean, who are the most influential people you can think of? It's AOC has a great social media presence. Even someone like Tommy Loren, you can see who I follow on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you specifically said Instagram and not like Twitter or something. Yeah. Something where there's a visual of yeah. Tommy Laren on there. Yeah. Is that how you say name? Laren? Lauren? Loren? Who's for our listeners, she's a very attractive, very right-wing, yeah. I don't even know, talking head, I guess would be an appropriate she's, She works for Fox, Fox News. There you go. Commentator. Anyway, but yeah, we got to get better on social media. We've got to start reaching these people where where they are on a regular basis. I mean, if somebody came and knocked on my door, I don't think that affects me at all. 
where the way I voted, whereas, you know, I'm seeing all these ads for Howard Schultz and seeing all these ads for these different people. And, and, uh, even somebody like Andrew Yang, I'm like, Oh, this guy, I like, I like the way he holds it, carries himself and blah, blah, blah. And then I start reading his policies and I'm like, okay, maybe he's a little, a little, little far left for me. But, mm-hmm. um, if he stayed away from the policies, I think he would be, he'd be great. <laughs> if only we could get Democrats not to talk about policy. I know, I know. They'd win all of us. <laughs> then <over>. we'd, yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, I think that there's also a lot of us, kind of Nick touched on this a little bit, who are fiscally conservative and socially a bit more liberal. We pay taxes. We want to see things for our taxes. We want to see those services. And if we're not seeing those services, we want our money back. But at the same time, we don't care who you marry. A lot of people right. are, are pro-choice. A lot of people are... All those things you said, we're pro-immigration, pro-woman, and uh, the perception is that Republicans are not. Right. And being around Republicans a lot, I know that that's not the case. We are very... We are the big ten. Most of us, yeah, we. (laughs) most of us are inclusive and not hateful at all, but it's the the hateful ones that tend to get to have the biggest bullhorns. So I do think it's interesting, though, you mentioned in, in your comments about the environment. And one of the challenges right now is we've got a cap and trade policy that we're debating in this building. And maybe this is my flaw as a legislator. I care so much about the policy that that's all I want to see. I want to see the right policy win. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at this cap and trade policy that will make life more expensive for Oregonians. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's going to raise the cost of fuel at least 16 cents. It's going to raise your electric bill 11%. The cost of utilities are going to go up. And so to what? And what are we trying to accomplish? Will our emission reduction in the state of Oregon have any impact on the global need for carbon reduction? And I would submit to you that no, it won't. And we'll have leakage and companies that exist here now that live under our regulatory environment will start to go and produce elsewhere where they don't have the same environmental regulations. They will Mm -hmm. start to emit more. And then the cost of transportation of getting those goods from that new location back here to the state where we still have demand for the product. Now there's even more carbon emissions. Now there's even more. And so we're passing this policy in the name of emotional appeal, right? Mm -hmm. The world's going to end in 11 years if we don't act. And it's not that I don't believe that man-made carbon is a problem and that we should do something about it. It's that what you're suggesting will not only cause harm to everyday Oregonians, it will not even come close to solving the problem. And if anything, it's going to make the problem worse. Where's the emotional appeal for that? How do you get folks to pay attention back home and recognize that those very people that are pitching you the solution haven't even properly vetted it, and their solution is actually going to contribute to the problem? Is it empirical data? Do you show them like the scientific explanation of how we get to a worse climate tomorrow than we are at today? Is it emotional appeal? You know, how do we reach people? And, and you know, it was, I was having a conversation with former Senator Ferrioli, mm-hmm. and I was using facts and figures. And he laughed at me. He's like, kid, this is why you're never going to be good at this job. Because <laughs> <laughs> fact and that figure me all day nowhere. long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're going to be right, and you're going to be right and left out of the policy making. So good for you. But I, I do think there's something to it, right? To drive to the right policy, it's got to be the mix of data and a common sense approach to emotional appeal that you can connect with the voters on a level that allows for common understanding of what we're trying to accomplish. Because again, to your point, I think if we put on the table everything we wanted Oregon to look like, R's, D's, I's, 
non-affiliated alike would say, yeah, we agree this is what we want the world to look like. And the question mm-hmm. is, how do we get there? Mm-hmm. How do we pay for it? How do we make sure we're spending our money wisely? How do we make sure that at the end of the day we started a program and we can then look back and say it was effective? At what point do you cut bait and shift to a new program? Because part of our problem historically in our education system is we come up with new curriculum and it two years later didn't achieve the results we wanted, so we try new curriculum. Well, did we give it long enough? Did we? Yeah. Do we figure out why this didn't work? Do we have any kind of sense of? Well, and that, and I, I think you're exactly right. I think the the question is how do you make an emotional argument around a logical set of data? And that's I we are we in the GOP are great logicians, and we are great at saying do you, what you exactly just said. It's like this will create more carbon. We will lose business, and we will have more carbon in the atmosphere. But that's not that doesn't tug at your heartstrings the same way as save the trees and save the earth does. And that's the argument the people on the left make. They're not talking about, here's all the reasons how we're going to have more carbon and thinking through the long term. And it's just, there's got to be a way to rethink the way that things get presented here in the GOP because that we just don't have that emotional tug at the heartstrings. People walk around and think we're all Mr. Burns or something like that. Well, and it's like, it's not the case. So here's an idea and not not really related to cap and trade, but an idea that we could tug at some heartstrings is take on mental health and homelessness. Absolutely. That is an issue that people living in downtown Portland, I deal with every single day. And if we can become the party that helps the homeless and gets them off the street, that's something that can tug at people's heartstrings. And it can also say, Hey, Democrats, you've been in a supermajority for how long? And what have you done about this? Nothing. Oh, you banned plastic bags, but there's still all these homeless people. I'm sure they don't care about your plastic bag ban. Let's be the party that that fixes that. Right. And I will say that was the point at which during the last campaign that I thought Newt Bueller had a chance to win hmm. was when he actually started putting forward some serious solutions to some of these problems. His homelessness solution, his mental health solution, his uh, DHS and foster kid solutions. Like I thought, oh my gosh, these are pragmatic. These make sense. People are going to see that he is actually solution oriented and pragmatic and he's going to solve some problems. And I thought, wow, this is really going to register with people. And so a little disappointed at the final outcome that he, you know, not only didn't win, but it wasn't as close as I thought it should have been considering all his skills and talents and, and great did. campaign staff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, I think the problem with, with the reason he lost, and this is just my having looked at the data, is just Democrats came out to vote. Typically, Republicans have a two to three percent advantage in turnout over the course, like, every election and this time we lost by five 6.2 but he's is it it 6.2 yeah you would know better than me but the democrats have always had more people registered but they didn't always come out to vote and so it was much closer and this one they just i think it was an anti-trump thing i think it was we hate trump so much we're going to come out and vote against anyone who has an an r by their name yeah the old adage all politics is local i think was disproven this last election cycle and i I don't disagree with what you said i think the same thing's going to happen in 2020 i think it's going to be another another blue wave i think probably even worse than in 2018 but i guess we'll see no i think that's the challenge for us now is how do we build that coalition of not just you know the traditional lobby that we've aligned with to rally support financially but actually get out to Oregonians and start getting their buy-in and their commitment to one, helping us build a bench, getting more people on the team to run for office and then giving them the financial resources that they need to push over the finish line. A second ago, we were talking about homelessness. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the show Seattle is dying? 
Mm-hmm. No. Uh-uh. Okay. Yeah. okay. YouTube the, video. The awesome YouTube, YouTube video. That's yeah, listeners, if you haven't gotten the chance to watch it, watch Seattle it. Seattle is dying, so it's mm-hmm. called. Okay. Yeah. And as we talk about solving problems, period, we've got to be cognizant of whether or not we're shooting at the right target. You know, and, and as we're talking about affordable housing, and again, that's a whole nother ball of wax. You talk about we've restricted the market, we've regulated the market, and then we complain that the market isn't responding. And our answer is to regulate it further. I mean, that's, again, it's <laughs> a whole nother podcast. Again, Democrats, not logicians. <laughs> but in this documentary, they point to mental health crisis, they point to substance abuse crisis, and very little of it actually has to do with whether or not there's affordable housing in the marketplace. Well, right. If you have mental health issues or addiction issues, it doesn't matter if your affordable housing is $100 a month or $10 a month. You still can't afford it. And even if you could, you're probably going to get thrown out because you've got, you know, you're going to bring your drugs back or you're going to, there's so many issues with some of these people. They need full-time care. Affordable housing isn't going to solve that problem. And we had another conversation today in economic development. We had a informational hearing about childcare and the absolute void they, you know, they call Oregon you know, needs or at least what we're offering today. You know, that Oregon has a desert for childcare, mm-hmm. that there just isn't any available. And they used a statistic. It was 27% of children under five have access to regulated childcare. Well, as soon as you see the word regulated in there, you start to have to ask the question, right? Well, how many people are staying at home with their parents or their grandparents or how many non-regulated neighbors are helping care for kids? How many kids are really not cared for versus how many people have chosen to go through the regulatory process to become licensed? And in that same conversation, you talk about families can't afford the cost of child care. The very next sentence is people providing child care aren't getting paid enough. <laughs> so there's a cognitive dissonance there. <laughs> yeah. So childcare is too unaffordable, and yet people that are providing the service aren't getting paid enough. We got to raise the price of childcare, which is going to raise the cost of yeah. So, so if fewer people are going to be able to afford it now, yeah. And so you know, I was excited. You know, the Ben Chamber was here today, and they were talking about a pilot program that they're putting forward, trying to build some coalitions of business entities that could then align and provide childcare under one umbrella for people that work for that. You know, the, those specific employees. And I thought, oh, you know, there's some creative thought process to trying mm-hmm. to solve this problem. Can we coordinate? and find aligned industries or aligned businesses or geographically aligned areas that we could target and say, we're going to put this child care facility for these businesses in this area. Uh, so there are at least some positive conversations. But again, I go back to that first comment, you know, it's too expensive and we're not paying them enough. How do you engage in that process to make it more affordable while allowing people to make more money? I don't know if you watch the show The West Wing. There's one episode where one of the characters says he saw a poll where 58% of respondents said we spend too much on foreign aid and 69% said they want it cut. And he cites that number throughout the episode. And finally, somebody says, why do you keep coming back to that? And he says, because that means there's 11% of respondents who think that we spend too much and don't want to see it cut. And it's like, you have to be able to make that jump logically from one thing to the other. If you're going to say something like that, like childcare costs too much and the people who provide it are paid too little, you have to be able to understand why that's a, like a non, non thing that you just said. Yeah. But Oregon voters are sometimes you, you got to think through these things a little bit better. Yeah. Well, what we've started doing is, uh, at the very end of our episodes, we ask people who their favorite Republican is. 
So we're wondering if you have a favorite Republican you would you would share with us. Are we are we limiting that to nope. any time date? Nope. Yeah, I, I do. I go to Reagan. Yeah. He's got such a fascinating story, you know, from labor union representative in his motion picture days to just giving speeches around the nation, trying to rally support for other candidates to then being encouraged to run. And, and I think at the end of the day, a very effective leader, uh, somebody that was affable, personable, uh, traveled the world, made connections. And I think those are the people that, at least for me, I gravitate towards in this building or predecessors that I look to for mentorship. They're the people that were able to build coalitions. Not necessarily that they were the brightest person or that they were the most skilled person, but they knew who was. Hmm. You know, I, I don't have to be the smartest person in the room if I know that someone else is the expert on that. I just need to be able to have access to them and bring them to the table when we need their input. And uh, it is a challenge on a daily basis doing this job. There's so many days where you feel underprepared or not adequate to do the job because the sheer depth and breadth of what we talk about is so overwhelming. But again, if you can keep that in the back of your mind and think about the guys that brought the right team to the table, then it's not about that individual's ability. It's about the collective. And, and you know, I worked for Dell Smith when I was at Evergreen Airlines. He was a self-made man, ultimately the CEO and chairman of that company. And uh, he was an orphan when he was growing up. Hmm. And he just put his own personal ambition and, and talents to work. And then at the end of the day, he built a coalition. And he used to say all the time, no one's smarter than everyone. Hmm. And yeah, I think I like that, that is absolute truth. And uh, the challenge is just taking the time and meeting enough people and finding those folks that you know become your mastermind alliance of how do you solve problems. Well, great communicator is certainly something we can emulate here on a podcast. Well, I we're like doing it. our best anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks so much for taking the time to meet with us. Yeah, of course. Thank you, and, guys. Uh, Good luck in your future endeavors and uh, in the Well, good luck in your future endeavors. <laughs> I'm hoping that you run for office someday now. I'm going to keep my eye on you, James. I'm in a uh, district that is has five Democrats for every Republican. So it's kind so of... So he's already doing the electoral math, you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's enough. Uh, thanks yeah. again for your time. And Thank listeners, you we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service, or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media, and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.